What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined with Jared as always, and we are going to be concluding our Minimal Facts miniseries today. The Minimal Facts approach to arguing for the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most popular approaches, maybe the most popular, I don't know, I don't have data, but I think it is. Anyway, it's super popular among apologists, and we're debunking it. So in this, the grand finale, we are going to be presenting to you our own hypothesis, a counter hypothesis, if you will, to explain the facts about Jesus' death and resurrection. So some of these uh, facets of our hypothesis, you've probably heard elsewhere before. We're going to try to be informative, give you good sources, but I don't think I've heard anybody present our approach to explaining Paul and his visionary experiences before. I'm not going to say that nobody ever has thought of it because I haven't heard every single person on earth talk, but I've never heard anybody say anything about it. So uh, it, before you go away, if you're, you know, want to go watch another channel, explain the sort of things we're going to talk about. Definitely wait until you hear us talk about Paul. Very excited yeah. about that. Okay. That's called a bait but, and switch. So <laughs> yeah. Is it? I think it's foreshadowing or <laughs> Yeah. A hook? Anyway, so uh, <laughs> let's recap where we are in case you haven't watched the previous two episodes. You should go do that. But uh, in case you haven't, in episode one, we talked about what the minimal facts approach is. And what it is is it basically takes all of the facts about Jesus and his life and uh, basically defining facts as those things that are well evidenced and also accepted by virtually all scholars, relevant scholars in the field, regardless of their own backgrounds. Uh, apologists then take these facts and argue that the divine resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation. Therefore, we should accept it. Different people have different sets of facts, uh, but the ones that we're using come from Mike Lacona and his dissertation, which you know he's kept these facts throughout time. So the facts as he presented them were, one, Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Two, very shortly after that death, some of his disciples had experiences that led them to believe that Jesus had been resurrected and that he had appeared to them. And fact three, within a few years after Jesus' death, Paul converted after experiencing what he, Paul, interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to him. Yeah. So this has no empty tomb, no appearances of the 500. This is as minimal of the minimal as you can get. So. Yep. Baseline. Minimal facts. And so in episode two, we took Mike Lacona's resurrection hypothesis and we ran him through the criteria that Mike Lacona proposed. He's not the only one who ever used these criteria, but they're the ones he chose to use. Those were, one, explanatory scope. That's how well the hypothesis explains all of the data, the scope of it. How many pieces did it hit? With the best being all of them, of course. Explanatory power. How easily does it do that? Does it have to like stretch and contort in order to explain things? Or is everything basically expected if the hypothesis were true? Number three, plausibility. How well the hypothesis fits with our background knowledge? How well does it rely on things that we know happen? So is it plausible? And four, simplicity or less ad hoc. Uh, doesn't go beyond what's already known. Doesn't bring in unevidenced assumptions in order to explain away certain pieces that are inconvenient. Yeah. So we took Mike's own uh, evidences, put up his own criteria and we put him in a computer and he spat out some results uh so he did pretty good actually in the uh scope and power categories um but not so well in the implausible and ad hoc categories or the plausible and ad hoc categories i should say so um yeah so not surprising that a good got good marks on scope and power when you're tailor making your hypothesis <laughs> facts it's gonna fit it really well so our goal today in episode three is to present our own hypothesis. Uh, it's one that we think is more plausible than the one that Lacona presented. It'll be up to you to decide whether that's actually true. Uh, I want to be clear. We are not saying that this is definitely what happened. We don't know. I don't think we can know. Yeah. What our goal today is to convince you that there is a plausible natural alternative, a explanation that doesn't require a supernatural component. It relies only on things we know happen. And uh, it's not the only hypothesis like that. And so given that we have reasonable, plausible, natural options, we should prefer those to ones that require a supernatural component. Uh, you may believe in the supernatural for other reasons, but you shouldn't believe in them for this reason. Yeah, and just remember too, like history is not about what determining what exactly happened in the past. It's about determining what more probably happened in the past. And there's a lot of things. So you 
Just keep that in mind when we're going through this. Yeah. So. But you're very rarely going to know exactly what happened with certainty. The best you can do is try to get the most probable explanation. Yeah. So here's what we think is more probable than the resurrection hypothesis. Our hypothesis comes in four steps. Step one, Jesus' disciples were apocalyptic Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah prior to his death. They were expecting the imminent end of their age, and that imminent end was going to include a bodily resurrection of the dead. Step two, after Jesus' death, some of Jesus' followers, probably Peter and uh, James, could have been Mary Magdalene, possibly, but somebody had a post-bereavement hallucination which convinced them that Jesus was alive again. Step three, super easy. With that knowledge, they went out and preached that message and they converted other people. And then step four, an enemy of the faith was eventually persuaded to this message due to his own experiences that he interpreted as Jesus being alive. Now, I know what you're thinking. Step four is just restating the question. I hear you. Just trust me. We have something clever. Just stick with us. Okay. <laughs> and step five, uh, seven-minute abs. So. Right. All right. <laughs> no. uh, so that's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things. So let's take them in order. Let's start at the top with Jesus' followers being apocalyptic Jews who believe that Jesus was a Messiah. Now, I'm going to explain what all those terms mean, but uh, I want to communicate to you that these are uncontroversial claims in the scholarship. They aren't accepted by everyone, but they're pretty broadly accepted even by uh, evangelical scholars and the people who don't accept them definitely being in the minority, they feel compelled to explain away the obvious signs of them being apocalyptic, right? So uh, some scholars think the apocalyptic tendencies came up later or whatever, but it's clear to everyone involved that this looks like an apocalyptic cult. Yeah. This right. is our own minimal fact version of this because most people will agree with this, this current right. one, right? So, but what exactly is uh, apocalyptic um, it comes from the word apocalypse, right? So what what is that? Right. Uh, so apocalyptic Jews uh, in the first century believed that their world was currently being ruled by the evil forces. There were basically two types of forces. There were the good ones, angels, God, that sort of thing, and the evil ones, uh, the opposition, Satan, his minions. Uh, though I don't know that they necessarily had developed Satan as a concept, but that's what we think of him as. Um, so if you're doing well now, and by now, I mean the first century. Uh, it's because you're aligned with those evil powers. The people who are in power now, they're in power because evil powers want them in power, right? And uh, that's why things are terrible. And they're getting more terrible every day. Very pessimistic view of the world. But don't worry, because this was about to change. God was going to intervene and pass judgment on everybody, including <laughs> those who were dead, which means that they'd have to come back to life. A bodily resurrection was going to happen for everyone. Uh, this judgment lead to a reversal of fortunes. So if you were in power now, you'd be cast down. If you were you know, persecuted and crushed now, it's because you were in opposition to those evil forces, you were going to be raised back up. And, uh, and that, you'd have a great place in God's kingdom, which is going to be a real physical kingdom, like a place you could go. You could, you could go to God's kingdom. Yeah. Uh, those messages are very clear in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, uh, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer, our kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus preached all about like the least of these and all these, so like that role reversal. So it's very clear that there was an apocalyptic message within the New Testament. So that's kind of undisputed that that was something that, yeah. Uh, and this judgment was going to happen very soon. It was like right around the corner. How soon was it? Some of you standing here will not perish before all of this comes to pass. That's Jesus, right? This is imminent, the imminent end of the age. It was like, right there. Uh, so if you want more evidence for like why scholars accept this, uh, we're kind of brushing past that in the interest of time. I'm going to leave a link in the description to Bart Ehrman talking about this, but you can listen to any other New Testament scholar and get a good overview of the evidence. So uh, if you don't believe us, go check them out. But okay, so that's an apocalyptic Jews and all of Jesus' followers were apocalyptic Jews. Uh, they weren't the only apocalyptic Jews in the first century. The Essenes, the Pharisees, they were also apocalyptic, but not all Jews were apocalyptic. Yeah. So our next one is that Jesus' followers believed he was the Messiah. Now, this was while he was on earth. Still alive. Still yeah. alive before he got dead. So uh, the Messiah actually comes from the meaning of the term, so anointed one. So this is a figure in Jewish eschatology that was going to bring in the end of the days, right? They were going to make things right again for the Jews. So Right. Uh, the exact nature of this Messiah wasn't 100% settled. Uh, he might have been a powerful priest, 
who was, you know, really great at interpreting God's word. He might have been a, a warrior. He might have been a king. Whatever he was, whatever the exact nature was going to be, it was going to be a figure of grandeur and power, and he was going to bring about change and, you know, liberate God's people. Yeah. Um, and the word Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, it that's the same word as Messiah. They yeah. both mean it's, it's the Greek word. It's the word Greek of it, yeah. The Greek translation, right? So, uh, so that's what Jesus. Wait a second. Jesus's last name isn't Christ. Yeah, born of Joseph and Mary Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's a Bardarman joke. <laughs> yeah, it is a Bardarman joke. Okay, yeah. so that's what Jesus followers believed before that. Okay, so let's tie this into our minimal facts. Minimal fact one: Jesus got crucified. Any explanation for Jesus and his life has to explain this. So you should always check if you're kind of trying to see you have an idea about Jesus or something. Does your picture of Jesus explain why he was killed? Because if your picture of Jesus is just, oh, he said we should be nice to people and, you know, we should love each other. Well, they're not going to kill him for that. You know, yeah. like that's not a crime. And, and more importantly, too, this is the Romans crucified yes. Jesus, right? Not the Sanhedrin or not the Jews. Right. Now, they may have played a role in bringing like Jesus behavior to the Romans attention or whatever, right. but ultimately it's the Romans who did it. And the Romans could not give two shits if Jesus was a blasphemer to the Jewish religion, because right. why would they care? Right. But what they would care about is this whole apocalyptic message because the Romans weren't stupid. And if the present powers are going to be cast down, Hey, wait a minute. We're the present powers. <laughs> <laughs> and if, and, and if this guy, this guy, Jesus is going to be a Messiah. That's the future King. Well, you can't have a future King unless the current King is removed. And the current King is the one we put in charge. And you can't be a future King if you're dead. So <laughs> yeah. So we'll fix that right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so that kind of claim would be treasonous, right? And you know what happens with tra traitors? Crucifixion. Yeah. So even aside from this kind of apocalyptic claim, uh, if Jesus had gathered a following and began to cause trouble in Jerusalem, particularly at Passover, that would also be an avenue to a quick uh, death. Well, a long and painful death, actually. Uh, Passover was a Jewish festival, is a Jewish festival, uh, celebrating God delivering the Jews from foreign oppression. That, again, was a fact not lost on the Romans. <laughs> they understood what was happening in the subtext. Yeah. And more important, not more importantly, but also to note is that many people would come to Jerusalem during Passover for like the high holy days. So there would be more right. people there, which would allow for more uproar, all kinds of yeah. stuff if somebody was rabble rousing. So not only was it celebrating a potentially subversive holiday, I mean, that wasn't the intent, but it kind of has that subversive message. It's also a ton of people, right? So Contrary to popular belief, it wasn't like there was a Roman soldier on every street corner, like modern day cops or something like that. Like the the Roman, the soldiers were on the border where like the enemies were going to be coming from. They didn't like scatter them around. And the governor didn't live in Jerusalem. The governor lived in Caesarea by the coast because it was way nicer, right? Uh, so we learned from Josephus though that when Passover was happening, the governor would leave his normal home with his cohort of, he didn't have like a full legion, but like his his group of soldiers that he kept on hand. And he would bring them to Jerusalem specifically to keep order in Jerusalem, right? And we have examples of issues happening in Jerusalem at Passover. The Romans intervened. It was usually violent. So that's a normal uh, thing to happen there. Uh, not only So not only is Jesus the kind of person who would be killed by the Romans and uh, expressing the kind of ideas that the Romans would punish, we have concrete examples of people doing similar things and falling afoul of the Romans. Uh, for instance, Josephus, we've mentioned him before. He tells, of, tells us of a religious leader that he calls a magician named Thutis. This magician uh, gathered up large crowds, and he said he was going to divide the River Jordan and then cross it with his people. This is a clear allusion to the biblical story of uh, crossing the sea, and which, of course, then led to the conquest of the promised land. And, you know, yeah. it's pretty obvious what the message is there. It's, and so the Romans came with a bunch of horsemen and killed everybody. <laughs> yeah, this is what Josephus tells us. So it's pretty interesting that the Romans had a good, like, uh, what's it, thumb on the pulse of what's going on in their yeah, area? They, like, they knew yeah, what was they, happening. They they weren't oblivious. Like they knew what was going on and they would make their, their opinions of it known at the end of a sphere usually. So uh, the Romans, not big fans of troublemakers. And so Jesus being thought of a Messiah pre-death makes a lot of sense of our data combined with his apocalyptic message and all that sort of thing. So 
Yeah, and, it, and it fits in with the story that we are told in the Gospels, too. Like, it makes sense. We plug that back into historical yeah. facts. So. so, first minimal fact down. And now that was the uncontroversial parts. So, let's get into the fun parts. Uh, piece two. After Jesus' death, some of Jesus' followers, probably Peter and James, uh, had post-bereavement hallucinations, and they convinced them that Jesus was alive again. So now that we're in the controversial part, let's roll out some citations. Uh, in the description will be all the citations we're going to talk about. So I'm just going to give the names of the author in a year or whatever. Check the description for the full text. Yep. So a post-bereavement hallucination. What that is, is pretty simple, kind of self-explanatory. It is a hallucination, uh, which we're not using to say like that, that someone's crazy or whatever. There's just an experience, which may or may not correspond to what's happening in reality. Um, that hallucination is brought on by the grief and mourning of a loved one. Yeah. So this usually relates to the, uh, mourning, the loss of a spouse. So, uh, camp et al. And in interdisciplinary review of research around sensory experiences of the deceased, this was published in 2020. They reported that they occur across cultures in all groups and in all types of relationship loss, regardless of religious affiliation or cause of death. So it's not like a specific group of people who lose a, a very close loved yeah. one. This is this is general across. Yeah, a lot of the research focuses on spousal loss. Uh, because uh, particularly in yep. older populations, because if you're going to lose a spouse, you've had been the wrong time, you're probably going to be old, yeah. right? But it is not exclusive to that group. Yeah. Uh, so some things that are very important for you to know about PBHs, post-breedment hallucinations. First is that it is surprisingly common, like shockingly common. Different studies have different ranges uh, depending on the sample size and the culture and every all other kinds of factors, but they vary from like 47, 50-ish percent to like 80% of people, again, according to camp. Um, that's a lot of people, right? Uh, now, that's for people who experience bereavement. Uh, even outside of bereavement, hallucinations aren't like super uncommon. Uh, according to Leroy, it's about 10 to 15%, but that's in like our population in the West where these things are not considered normative and like they're, they're not a normal, expected, or desired thing to have. In other cultures, it can be different, right? Yeah. So it's, even though it is more unusual in someone who isn't bereaved, it is not super unusual, and it isn't necessarily an indication that you're, you know, have some kind of mental illness. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that can actually influence the the data and how these reports are collected, right? Like somebody may just be like afraid to say something, right, because they don't want to be called out. Um, yeah. So they don't want to be the crazy person who sees ghosts, right? Yeah. So, uh, so it's hard to say what the exact percentage is, and again, varies through time, through cultures, and everything. The important takeaway is that it's common. This is a normal thing that people experience all the time. Uh, the hallucinations can be brief or they can persist for years. Depends on the person. Uh, they usually come on in the first month of loss, uh, according to Grimby. Others, like the first few weeks, like they tend to happen shortly after death, which makes sense. That's when you're upset. You know, you're, you're trying to process yeah. these sort of things. Um, again, this prevalence suggests that this is not indicative of mental disorder because it happens to the vast I wouldn't say the vast majority of people. So a lot of people, possibly even a majority of people, you can be perfectly healthy, not have any kind of mental illness, still experience a PBH. Um, so that's important because this means that we don't need to psychoanalyze someone in the past to make the inference that if you have a group of people, say, I don't know, just pick a number, 12, uh, that some fair percentage of those people are going to have a bereavement hallucination if they lose a loved one. Even if it's 10%, it's one or two of them, right? Like. Exactly. Yep. Right. Uh, it's suspected that the emotional closeness with the deceased could be a factor with these experiences, but the research is inconclusive. Uh, some suggest that, but it's not been reproduced widely. So grain of salt there, uh, according to camp again. Okay. So that's how common they are. Uh, what do they manifest as? What do they actually like? Uh, so they, again, wide variety. The most common perception was just like a feeling. Some researchers called it the feeling of presence. Uh, and that's just like the strong feeling or conviction that the person is there with absent, well, sometimes coupled with other uh, inputs, but it can also be absent other inputs. After that, uh, visual presence, like seeing the person followed by hearing them, sounds or smells with tactile, uh, like feeling feeling their touch or you feeling them uh, being the least common, but still not, you know, unheard of 
And I mean, various some, authors reported that. Yeah, some people even go on to like actually having conversations or feel like they're receiving messages from from the deceased. Yeah, some of the stories, like the research is really interesting. For instance, Matchett uh, reporting stories from Hopi Indians in 1972. Uh, one of the women had uh, bereavement hallucinations of her husband, and they were crazy. Like, wait, well, not crazy, not, not mental crazy. disorder crazy, but just like, yeah. but like, like it, it was, it was intense, like. <laughs> She'd after she'd uh, go to bed, she'd be like sitting in this kind of darkened room, and she her husband would appear to her. Uh, sometimes they would talk, um, and this went on for a while. And at first, it was very comforting. Uh, eventually, like he like, he would like touch her cheek, and he, she said she could feel him like caressing her. And eventually, it got kind of dark and weird because the husband's like, "Stop bringing you back. I'm dead. I want to be dead. Like leave me alone," you know. But yeah, the, the important thing is like they can they can range wildly on what they like. Um, the important thing, though, is even though the exact nature changes, like uh, varies from person to person, even throughout the experience, one common thread along from a lot of people is how real it feels, yeah. like how vivid it was to them. So Casanova, for example, says, quote, individuals truly believe the deceased to be sometimes physically present, even in the absence of any visual, auditory, tactile, or olfactory smell perception. Um, you should you should say that one more time. Once again, individuals truly believe the deceased to be sometimes physically present, even in the absence of any visual auditory, tactile, or olfactory perception. And that is from a study. Well, that's from a survey. Survey right? on PBHs, right? Yeah. So, and, and you can see this all throughout the literature. Uh, Hayes, the thesis or the dissertation that we linked to in the description uh, is one of my favorites because it has a lot of really cool interviews with people. And one of her individuals uh, said they were vividly aware of their mother standing at the bed looking at them. And she didn't want to give her mother the satisfaction of looking at her, so she didn't. She didn't that, <laughs> imagine. So she's laying in her bed, not looking at her, and yet, so she does not and cannot see, but said she knew her mother was there. And not only did she know her mother was there, she knew what she was doing and how she was standing. And and this is a person who said who is not saying, This is what I felt. No, this is real, is what this person was saying. Wow. Uh, it, another uh, another participant believed that their son, who had died, was there in the room, sitting in a chair that they could see was empty. So he's in the chair, despite the chair being empty, but they knew he right. was in the chair. Again, feeling of presence, vividly real. They feel that this person is there, is right there. Even though their eyes are telling them something different, that this intense feeling is more important. Yeah. And again, these are neurotypical people who are not having mental disorder right. issues. Yeah, so. uh, the feeling of presence is often described as like a direct apprehension of their being, right? You're not seeing them. You can be seeing them. You can be touching them. You can be hearing them, all those things. But outside of all of that, in addition to all of that, perhaps, you feel they are there. Uh, a good example of that from a name probably most of you know, Vice Rhino, as many of you know, uh, recently, like year or so ago, uh, his wife died. And he has relayed publicly some of his experiences with that. Uh, he is an atheist, and I believe also a materialist, uh, definitely a naturalist. So despite that, despite him believing that life ends at death, there is no afterlife, there is no soul, he has talked about his own post-breathement hallucinations, where he felt the presence of his wife, and he was so convinced that she was alive and there, that he started like, thinking about how he was going to call everyone and tell them that he was wrong because his wife's there alive. And this is an atheist who is not living in a culture where these hallucinations are normative and doesn't, and his worldview would tell him that this is completely false. And yet, and, and he thinks of course it's false now, but like in the moment it didn't feel that way. Yeah. And it, it's interesting you bring up culture too, because most PBHs, they tend to be interpreted through the the culture or the personality uh, and religious exemptions of which that person is in, right? So, uh, right. Uh, how the the experience is interpreted and the content of that experience depends on the person's culture. So, in the West, uh, it's largely considered positive. 
almost not like 80 ish percent of the experiences were considered positive or helpful. Um, in a lot of cultures, they are considered positive and helpful, but not all. Sometimes they're considered negative. Um, when someone has this experience, they often interpret them within their own cultural and religious framework. And so like that tells them what to think about them, how, uh, what is real about them, whether they're real. Uh, and it also influences the manner in which they happen. So these sort of experiences tend to conform to what your ex your expectations are, and then you also post hoc rationalize them in the con in light of what you believe. So an example of that, uh, Leroy reports a Navajo woman who experienced a PBH, and she experienced it in that kind of transition period between dreaming and waking, where you're just kind of starting to wake up, right? In uh, modern Western culture, we often recognize that you can still be kind of carryover dreaming and stuff. So we tend not to put stock in those experiences. She had an experience with, I believe, her husband. Uh, but the important thing is she had this experience and she defended it as that's real. Like that experience is just as valid as anyone I'd have walking around. And in her culture, that is the expectation. So that's how she interpreted it. And so just uh, just to recap this section, like PBHs, they happen usually really quickly after the loss of a loved one. They're common amongst all people, amongst different cultures, although they vary how they are interpreted through that culture, but they're common occurrences and you do not have to have a mental disorder to experience one. Right. So let's bring this back to our minimal facts, the disciples. We have is in a phenomenon that's well established. It's common when a loved one is lost. Uh, they're dead or perceived as really, really there, as actually there in some sense. Uh, the meaning of this experience is interpreted through their own expectations, their religious context, and they happen soon after. Well, this sounds an awful lot like what we'd need to get what we see from the disciples. The disciples were, remember, apocalyptic Jews. And so their religious context, religious context of the people having these experiences are people who believe that the end of the world is near, that the dead are going to be raised as part of this end of the world that they think is coming, and that the person who is going to bring this about Jesus, the Messiah, the, the future triumphant King, he died. And then they had this experience. So you put all that together. It's not hard to see how some of them might be convinced, uh, interpreting this as an apocalyptic Jew. Uh, they might be convinced of this in a way that br brings them relief. They were right. Jesus was right the whole time. Jesus is the Messiah, just like we thought. Because the end of the world that we expected is happening. It's happening right now. And I know that because I saw him. He's alive. So. I, yeah. I, and I know he's alive because I literally saw him yesterday. Yeah. I think this is uh, important to point out, too. When we're speaking of apocalyptic Jews, we also have to remember us from a Western point of view. And also, even then, like we have a very different understanding of what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. Many people will think that you have this mind, uh, this body-soul thing, right? So, like... Uh, the body and the soul can be separated. Apocalyptic Jews did not have that idea. The body and soul were one. So you could not have a soul without a body. So like the idea of like, if you're thinking about this post-bereavement hallucination, like it'd be easy for us to think, well, maybe that was the soul in our culture that I saw. Like the body wasn't there, but I saw the soul of my loved one. If a apocalyptic Jew saw that, they can't have they a soul might. without the body, right? Yeah. Now, it's not to say that other people, they would have a total lack of familiarity with the other view. That was more the Greek view of right. the times. It's not like they would have never heard of this concept. But within their own context, that was not the expectation. It's part of why they expected a bodily resurrection yeah. is because that's if, if you're going to have the soul, that's like if you want the person to be judged, they got to be there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, also, and a critical point is that the minimal fact we're explaining doesn't require group uh, appearances. That's it also, not a minimal fact. Yeah, it, and it also doesn't require all of the disciples to have experiences either, right? Right. Uh, the only the ones that are well evidenced are Peter and James. It's possible others had them, but we don't require any more than that in order to get everything we see. In fact, I don't even think you need to start with Peter and James because it's also well known that like, if I told you, hey, I had this experience, now you're primed to have that experience as well, right? And so Peter or James has this experience, tells the other one that just raises the already reasonably high likelihood that they might have that experience too. And once you have some people who are themselves convinced, everything else follows. 
why are they willing if you believe that they sacrificed themselves for the thing which is not a minimal fact but let's say you believe that let's say you believe they were martyred why were they be willing to be martyred for something that isn't true because they think it's true yeah and that's all this, right. there's some really interesting uh psychological studies done on like priming and like you know mass hysteria yeah. like so we'll get into that some other time but yeah so uh lacona in his paper deals with some hypotheses that are kind of like this. Uh, he doesn't really answer the objection. His main like thing he brings up is that, uh, well, it, yeah, that could explain one or two people, but uh, in Peter's experience, uh, James and John were there too, so how do you explain that? And to which I have to say, whoa, pump the brakes. Pump the brakes, Mike. That's not a minimal fact. <laughs> so... <laughs> You can't switch up in the middle, you know. Well, I mean, you we, can. We, we just, yeah. But. Are we doing minimal facts? Are we doing, you know, not minimum, but like a little bit more than minimal, you know? So, okay. No, no group appearances. Uh, the other main objection is psychoanalyzing people in the past, which we I touched on earlier. Uh, the reason this is a reasonable objection is because it's difficult enough to diagnose someone with a disorder, like when they're sitting in front of you and you're an expert, right? right? Uh, several of my children struggle with some forms of mental illness and i can tell you that getting a firm diagnosis is difficult and so if it's hard for modern professionals with a person right in front of them to do that how much harder would it be to do that 2000 years ago again that's why pbhs are what we're talking about because they aren't a disorder we don't have to psychoanalyze anyone all we're saying is this is a thing that neurotypical people experience all the time yeah so okay so that's fact one and two, why Jesus was killed and how his disciples had visions. The last fact is that there was a hostile witness who was converted, right? Now, the way that's usually described, uh, the last minimal fact is that Saul of Tarsus, known as Paul, he had some sort of experience that convinced him that Jesus had risen from the dead. And while PBHs can work for Jesus' followers, perhaps, or his family, like they were bereaving, Paul wasn't bereaving. Paul was persecuting Christians, right? So yeah. like... There's no PB, there's no way for him to have a PBH because he's not briefed, right? Uh, so what the way this is, objection is often put up is what are the odds that Paul, this person who was just like hard in the paint <laughs> in persecuting Christians, why would he become a Christian? So this, this is an extremely unlikely thing and therefore requires a divine explanation, right? And I I think that that is the exact wrong way to look at things. I think that might be survivorship bias because it didn't have to be Paul. The question isn't really what are the odds that Paul would convert, but instead the question is what are the odds that a hostile person would convert? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, so imagine you were at a show uh, talking to a bunch of people and there's a crowd of like a thousand people there. And then you you call out somebody's favorite color, right? And that just happens to be somebody's favorite color. Like Royal blue. Is that someone's favorite color? Oh my God, that's my favorite color. How amazing that's somebody's favorite color. What are the odds that I would choose that person's favorite color? Oh my God, obviously that's ridiculous. You just picked a color and it happened to be somebody. If you'd picked a different color, it would be somebody else, right? Yeah, Yeah. The odds are that somebody though, that's the thing. Yeah, Right. In a large enough crowd, somebody's going to have a favorite color that is the color you picked. And so it isn't remarkable. Same thing here. Uh, Paul was a hostile person, but there were many hostile people and if another person had been converted then we'd be talking about that other person and not paul and it's very possible that other people did convert and we just don't know about them yeah and in fact i would say it's virtually guaranteed that people i mean everybody (laughs) everyone was not a christian and then became one you know (laughs) not not all of them necessarily Uh, were persecuting christians at the time but like Yeah. yeah it's not crazy to think that hostile people would convert. That is a thing that happens. Now I'll admit Christians lucked out in getting Paul because it turns out he was really, really good at converting people. Right. So he he had some really good ideas and without Paul, we'd have a a different religion, but that's just saying religion. (laughs) That's just saying if things were different, things would be different. Okay. Okay, cool. That still doesn't like, yes, if they had converted someone different, things would be different. Yeah. And and so, but this goes, so to kind of drive this point home that this is just common. So like, this is, this kind of delves into the realm of like anecdotal evidence, right? Because it's, it's very hard to put this down and like 
concrete form. But you can't go into someone's mind. And yeah, like, exactly. The, the, you you have to kind of ask them like if they were converted, you have to take their word for it almost. But 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 we can at least use anecdotal ed- evidence to counter the the argument that what are the odds that Paul, a hostile person, would convert? Right. Well, yeah. here's a couple examples. So first uh, of all, us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we we deconverted, so we went from one position, Christianity, to a position we were both very much opposed to I was atheism. hostile towards atheism. In fact, I thought atheists were, were the Satan worshipers when I was younger. So, so yeah. And now you're an atheist. So there's two hostile witnesses right there. Hail Satan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, here's a couple examples. Go check these out on the interwebs, uh, but look up Gary Miller. So Gary Miller was a mathematician uh, and also a Christian missionary. And so he wanted to put his two uh, skills together. So he started to look at the Quran and he wanted to be able to use math to prove to uh, Muslims why the Quran was false and had errors in it so that way he could convert them to Christianity. So he went and started studying the Quran and guess what? He converted and now he's a Muslim. So (laughs) Uh, go ahead. You remember this guy? Certainly not the, the only one of <laughs> Lee Strobel. It's like not just Lee Strobel, like half of all apologists, it feels like, <laughs> where I was atheist or Muslim or whatever thing, and now I'm a Christian. And that's how you know I'm it's right. Uh like, like literally all of them. <laughs> yeah. And so this isn't just Christian or Muslim though. So I did find and this is harder actually too, because I wanted to find some other uh, examples of non-Western religions. But uh the idea of conversion in, in Hinduism is actually a very different like they don't even believe in the idea of being com- converted. So it was hard to like pinpoint down some examples, but I found this one um, story by uh, a woman named Divya Jane. And so she was, grew up Hindu, came to the States, became a Christian, and then reconverted back to Hinduism. But on her uh, blog post that she put in there, she was like recounting her story of the thing. And she writes, gosh, I was scared about it. And more than scared, in all honesty, I had started hating Hindu rituals, culture, teaching, and my Hindu Jain identity. Such is the way a brain can get wired if hate is inoculated against anything. It had been a gradual process and took two years for me to be in that position where I was hardwired to hate other faiths other than Christian, hate other faiths than Christianity. My baptism had changed me. I wasn't the same person. After baptism, I was abusing everything Hindu from its teachings to its rituals, practices, cultures, Mandir, Murti, on and on. So like, this is a woman talking about how much she hated the Hindu religion. She had converted to Christianity. Guess what? She converted back to Hinduism. <laughs> so, so what these show, and it's something, I don't think it's a particularly controversial claim. People who disagree, even like vitriolically or violently disagree with the religion, convert to that religion all the time. It is a thing. It's not like it's a, like if you had a group of a hundred people, most of them would do it. But if you have a group of a hundred people, some of them are going to, because yeah. it's a common thing that happens. Right. Uh, and well, before we get it, to this next point though, I want to, cause Paul had a vision, right? So like, I'm going to link a video in the, in the description of this to a, um, a Muslim who used to be a Christian who converted because he had a dream, a vision in a dream of Muhammad. And so he converted to, to Islam as a result of that. So just, just to kind of give us some comparison. So, right. So even converting due to a vision is not something that's yeah. unheard of as happening. It, the, 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 the point is that these are things that happen. They happen in two Christianity, away from Christianity, between faiths that aren't Christianity at all. And so, like, even if you think, like, okay, well, the people are having visions about Christianity are having because it's real. It's true. That's why, right? Even if you accept that, that's fine. People are still converting away from the real religion, too, right? So, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Uh, And, okay, so to sum up this point, because just to make sure that uh, everyone got it, it didn't have to be Paul. It was Paul. Didn't have to be. Could have been anyone. Even though Paul was a great missionary, that didn't have to be Paul. There could have been another person who was the best missionary if Paul wasn't around. And then we'd have the letters of James or the letters of John, the letters of Mary. I don't know, you know, whomever, right? Probably not Mary, patriarchy. But the point is that uh, I think getting hyper-focused on Paul and his particular story, it's important that we are able to account for it. Like if Paul's conversion is impossible outside of the supernatural, well, okay. That's good evidence. But as long as Paul's conversion is plausible, then I don't think we need to be hyper-focused on Paul. 
we can say, okay, what are the odds that something like this would have happened? Right, because something yeah. like this would have happened are quite good. Because their argument relies on the fact that Paul was hostile and he wouldn't right. convert because he was hostile. So, which just people convert to hostile reasons all the time. That that just yeah. flies in the face of human experience. Okay, so that is our hypothesis, but we can't just give it to you. We also have to assess it. We're going to use the same criteria that Lacona presented, the same criteria we judged his um, argument against. We're going to judge our argument against it. So the first uh, criteria is explanatory scope. Again, that's how much of the available facts the hypothesis explains. Um, I think that Lacona's S tier, S tier being the highest if you're not a gamer or whatever, uh, S tier is the best because it explains everything, obviously. I'd give ours an A tier. It, does, it, it explains pretty much everything. Um, uh, there's some things that maybe aren't minimal facts. It doesn't quite explain all of them. I don't think you have to, but you know, it's it's not like as all encompassing as Lacona's is. So it's pretty good scope. That's a good grade, though. Yeah. I think I think it's pretty good. Yeah, explanatory power. This is how easily the facts are explained or how expected they are, given your hypothesis is true. Um, again, Lacona S tier because if Jesus, everyone saw Jesus because he rose from the dead. Bingo bang. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't doesn't get much more better than that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but for us, I still give us good marks. Uh post-bereavement hallucinations are very common things. And so uh it's not unexpected given that they're common. It's not unexpected that this is how things would happen. Um Paul is explained as basically a consequence of group dynamics. It's virt it's virtually inevitable that somebody hostile and probably many somebody's would be converted, right? Yeah. Again, just thing that happened. It didn't have to be Paul. So the ratings uh for ours, I'd say. B plus A tier, pretty good. Could be better, you know. That it does rely on some unlikely things, um, because like not everybody has a post-bereavement hallucination, right? So it's not perfectly expected on our hypothesis, but it's reasonably expected. Um, but I would like to say though, like this is a world-spanning religion we're talking about here. Those don't happen every day. So if something a little bit unlikely has to happen for it to happen, like that's <laughs> yeah. not crazy, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so. B tier, maybe A tier for us. Uh, S tier for Lacona, obviously. So, so far, Resurrection's doing good. That's about to change. Uh, plausibility. <laughs> <laughs> this is how well the hypothesis is supported by our background knowledge. So, how well does it fit in with what we already know? Uh, again, I think ours does really well here. Because, as we discussed, PBHs are very common in a variety of cultures with a variety of relationships. And... For Paul, hostile witnesses are converted to persecuted religions regularly. Yeah. These are both things that are well-established features of reality, right? So to the extent that our hypothesis relies only on things that are well-established, I'd say it's maybe even S-tier, at least A-tier, but possibly S-tier, because it doesn't rely on anything that we don't have good evidence for. And, and remember, this is plausibility, not probability. So Right. This is how well it, how well it relies on things we know happens, yes. basically. Uh, and so on that, the resurrection hypothesis falls straight on its face because it relies on the existence of the supernatural, and that is not a demonstrated fact. And it's, importantly, a fact that Lacona doesn't even attempt to demonstrate. He, he gives no attempt whatsoever to demonstrate that the, uh, the supernatural exists. We talk about him and the supernatural issue in, in episode two, so we won't spend a ton of time on it. But basically, he's like, oh, we don't know. Could be either way. So 50-50, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 So because he relies on something that is not established in our background knowledge at all, F tier, Z tier, like whatever is after <laughs> Z tier, it's bad, right? It's completely implausible. Uh, last criteria is simplicity or uh, less ad hoc. Um, so for the disciples, again, we're relying only on things that know happened. So it's, we're not bringing any kind of unevidenced assumptions for them. They were people who were grieving. They were apocalyptic Jews, exactly what we have there. Um, for Paul, people do convert. It didn't have to be Paul, but the fact still remains it was Paul, right? And his specific experience was visionary. Um, as we cited before, about 10 to 15% of the population outside of bereavement context experienced some kind of visionary hallucinatory experience in their life, um, more in some cultures. Um, so it's not implausible that it would happen to Paul, but it would mean that he would be in the minority of people, right? It would He'd not only be in the minority that had this experience, but also who believed it was veridical. Right. And while this may not be, because it takes a couple extra steps to get to Paul, 
it's not as simple as what we would like it to be, but we're not adding anything ad hoc here that's out right. of the realm, right? So well, uh, we we have to suppose that Paul is uh, in that 10 to 15% of the population that has a hallucination yeah. and is whatever subset believe their hallucination is real uh, based on his culture or whatever. So for the disciples, the ad hoc nature, I'd say STR is not ad hoc at all. Uh, it just relies exactly on what we know about them. It's B tier for Paul. It's bringing in stuff that is just if you were to pick out 100 people out of the crowd, it'd be less likely to pick one that fits this thing, but it's not unreasonable, right? So kind of not amazing, but okay for Paul. Great for the disciples. Average it out, maybe high B or A. Hmm. Um, Lacona, uh, I don't want to hit him twice for the same thing, so I'm going to let the whole supernatural piece per se, that the fact that there is a supernatural slide, but I am going to ding him on ad hoc because it's not just that he requires a supernatural. Uh, as we talked about last episode, this supernatural also has to be of a quality that it would permit his specific Christian view of things, right? right? Because it's many. not just that the Christian God exists. Like you can't say, oh, uh, the Hindu God, Vishnu, raised Jesus back from the dead so he could create this right. al- alter you know, like religion that's right. going to fit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are many conceptions of the supernatural and many of them would not allow for this, right? So it's not merely that the supernatural exists. It is also the supernatural exists and also it has to be of this specific type, right? Yeah. So because he's bringing in that additional uh, unevidenced assumption, even if you grant him that the supernatural exists, he still has to further bring in that the supernatural is of such a character that it would fit these facts. Um, I don't I don't know exactly where to put them. Uh, C tier, B tier, I don't know. Something not S tier. Right. Yeah, it's not. It dings somewhere. It, it, it may be even C, D tier, actually, if you think about know. the extra steps. But anyways, it's not. The, the, yeah. Not great. The, that's the point. Okay. So comparing the two, uh, because plausibility by <clears throat> Lacona's own standard is the single most important one, right? He lists it first. It is the most important criteria, and that's the one his fails. Um, whereas ours does quite well for, for plausibility by Lacona's standards. I believe he should reject the resurrection hypothesis as a historian and accept as more likely true uh, bereavement, hallucination. The naturalistic. Plus, yeah. yeah. Plus Paul hypothesis. Uh, we should come up with a cool name for it. That would have been, we'll, we'll, we'll put a name in the title. Uh, that'll be really cool. Hopefully. Uh, anyways. Uh, so uh, what does this mean? I think this means that all apologists are wrong and everyone should stop being Christian. Right. No, I think, no, that's, yes, that, yes, that is exactly what it means. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, what it means is that uh, if we're comparing these two hypotheses, hypotheses, hypothesize, if, we're, com- if we're comparing these two hypothesize, <laughs> um, one of them is more probable than the other. Given just what we know from history and just what is well established in the facts. What this doesn't mean is that everybody who hears it immediately needs to stop being Christian. Because you could have things in your experience, in your background knowledge, that convince you that the supernatural is real for other reasons, and they may be good reasons. I don't know. I don't know you, so maybe they are good reasons. Mike Lacona spent some time talking about why he's convinced. I don't think his reasons are particularly good, but they're convincing to him. And so Mike Lacona might be perfectly reasonable in believing that the supernatural is true, and so for his personal beliefs, he might be. it might be completely rational for him to accept the resurrection. But from a historical standpoint, you can't, you should not claim that right. the resurrection is the more probable event in history. Event. As a historian, right. Yeah. You want to believe it as a person of faith because you think it's true, or you want to believe it because of this other thing that happened. I, I would love to hear the thing that convinced you that the supernatural is real. Like if you have other evidence, the you can't though then use the resurrection as evidence for the supernatural. If like, you, you have to bring the supernatural to the resurrection in order for to render it pro- probable, then the resurrection doesn't get to be evidence for the supernatural. That would be circular, right? Yeah, that's Can't have it both ways. So either the resurrection on its own has to be good enough to stand for the supernatural, which it doesn't, or you need to bring in your own supernatural assumptions. So uh, that is that. That's the minimal facts. I hopefully done and dusted. I suspect that we'll continue hearing about it for a long time, but well, now you're armed with the facts. Yeah. So now that we've done minimal facts, maybe we should do the maximal 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the next logical conclusion. So, so I will just add here at the end, before we get to our fallacy of the day, I've noticed that more and more Christians are realizing just how uh, bad of an argument the minimal facts is for the resurrection from a historical standpoint, that they're abandoning it. They're throwing it over ship and they're jumping on the maximal boat. They're like, all right, we're going all in on this one. So, But I, I think that has all kinds of problems too. Um, so I, I do see a trend in Christian apologetics circles of being less convinced by the minimal facts argument just because the minimal facts don't get you very far. Oh. That they're very easy to explain from a natural standpoint. And if and if you think about it from a, a Christian standpoint, like if you're saying that the entire gospels are accurate eyewitness accounts or that they're they're the word of God. But we can't use them. We have to just use these three little facts or these four little facts. Like, I mean, how powerful is is your gospel? Like, I don't, it's just, yeah. So, so uh, hopefully we'll have some other great argument come to the form. Uh, you know what? I hope that the minimal facts gets put on the shelf and we get a better argument. Because yeah. I want the best argument. If, if, if the supernatural actually exists, if Jesus did rise from the dead, I want to know. And so I want the best arguments possible. So let's put this one away. Let's get a better one. And speaking of best argument, if you feel like we straw man Mike Lacona's position, please let us know. Like, Yeah, I don't think we did. I spent a lot of time reading his thesis and listening to the things he said. And like you said before, we respect Mike Lacona. That's why we picked him yeah. because we think he's one of the better people to argue for this. Um, but yeah, if you think we got something wrong about it, please let us know in the comments. We'll be happy to correct ourselves. Uh, speaking of things you should correct, our fallacy of the day is the sharpshooter fallacy. <laughs> so the sharpshooter fallacy gets its name from like the old west. Like if you had like a, somebody would shoot up at a bullseye, shoot a target, and then go up to that target and then draw the bullseye around the bullet hole, basically, right? So like right. this right. is where I was aiming right there. <laughs> Yeah, so you shoot a bunch of things, then you draw the target around where you're shot. I hit exactly what I was aiming at. Look at that. Amazing. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of related to moving the goalpost uh, sort of thing. But basically what you're doing is you're looking for similarities, but ignoring disconfirming evidence or ignoring things that don't fit. So you would like the conclusion to be over here. So this is where we're going to look. We're not going to look at all the other things that don't match, right? This yeah. is a don't, Ignore the shots that are over there that I didn't circle. Look at the ones that I circled right here. Yeah. That's what that's what the sharpshooter fallacy is doing. And so uh, the way that you avoid this is just by honestly assessing your evidence. Even uh, a good hypothesis won't necessarily explain every single thing. Reality is messy and things happen and not everything fits in a neat box, right? So like even if your, ex your explanations might be the best one, doesn't mean it's perfect, right? right? So you should acknowledge... Uh, the places where your explanation falls down or is maybe not as good as it could be. Uh, that's one, how you're going to find out you're wrong by looking for things that are, that are disconfirming. And two, uh, it, I mean, even if you're just looking at it from a purely um, like cold hearted, I want to convince people kind of like practical standpoint, you come off as way more honest and reasonable if you're willing to admit when things aren't perfect rather than just lying and saying they are right. So even if you're being Machiavellian about it, you should probably <laughs> still acknowledge it or don't. I don't know. The internet definitely disagrees with me there. So. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. So uh, if you made it this far, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Leave feedback in the comments. We do read all your comments and uh, let us know what you want us to cover in the future. I think we'll be going to some mythicism content soon. Uh, but anyway, subscribe, hit the bell so you know when that's happening. And until then, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.